Well, let me invite you, church, to turn to the Gospel of Luke. And we'll be in Luke 23 this morning, beginning in verse 44. I'm excited to continue our study of the Lord's work upon the cross as we work our way through this wonderful Gospel. Of course, we'll continue our study of the Lord's work next Sunday, as you know, Easter Sunday. And I'm already looking forward to it. I think it's going to be just a wonderful, of course, incredible time of celebration and joy as to what the Lord has done. It will be a great time, of course, to invite friends and family and so uh, neighbors and so forth, and and they will hear the gospel, as uh, they will hear every Sunday, by the way, uh, if you want to bring them then. And so I certainly hope that you plan to do so. Um, But I want you also to make you aware that we're worshiping on Friday as well, as we do every year on Good Friday. And to be honest, uh, Good Friday, along with Christmas Eve service, two of my favorite services all year. And this Good Friday, we will uh, read through the Passion events as recorded in the Gospel of John, seeing a number of our favorite hymns, uh, hear a brief message from God's Word, and then remember the Lord's work through the Lord's Supper. And so I hope you're able to come on Friday. I trust um, we will worship God well. Before we get into Luke, I want to read you a letter or two that we received as Many of you know uh, we, as a church, support uh, the students, uh, some students to attend Eagle Butte, or excuse me, Windswept Academy in Eagle Butte, South Dakota. And the reason why they're able to attend that school is because of your giving uh, and our ability to send them. And so this is a letter that we received. It says, Dear Hamilton Baptist Church, thank you for taking the time to sponsor me. My name is Thomas Thunder. I have 11 siblings. Those 11 siblings are all half. We all have different moms or dads. My dad passed away when I was eight, and my mom is trying to get her life back together. Until my my mom does, I am staying with Adam and Rachel. My favorite thing to do is play basketball, football, and work out. My favorite subject is history. The school and the family I stay with has really changed my life. I enjoy school because of the friends I have. I thank you again for sponsoring me. I appreciate it very much. Sincerely, Thomas Thunder. Here's another letter we received from Jason. Dear sponsor, thank you for all your support. We have to tell you about us. (laughs) I like the color red. My favorite food is bacon. I have two cats and one dog, and they are getting along now a bit. My favorite game is Fixel Gun D. I had it for two years. I am eight. I live in Eagle Butte, South Dakota, your friend, Jason. How about one more? Dear Hamilton Baptist Church, thank you for praying, paying for me to go to Windswept. This year has had its ups and downs. Seventh grade is hard, but who said it wouldn't be? I realize that life gets hard even when you don't want it to. There's been a lot that has gone on that has taken a toll on me, and it's been hard to focus on school. This new year is better than last year. But school is great, and I, have the, I love the environment here. My name is Zion, as most of you know, and I am 16 years old. I've been attending Winslow for seven years now. This is my eighth year. I love to write, read, sing, hang out, meet new people. I love kids and just being myself. I have five brothers and no sisters. My foster family I live with, I have three foster sisters and one older foster brother. God has helped me a lot this year. My walk with him is very strong. He has blessed me so much. I can be thankful and hope he gives me many blessings to come. Thank you for taking your time to read my letter. Have a blessed day and smile. God bless. 
sincerely as I am. These students go to Windswept Academy and hear the gospel, are loved through Christ because you give. And I'm excited for our continued sponsorship and support of these ministries. And I know in a couple of weeks, as Josh reminded us, there's going to be an informational meeting to continue to consider how we as a church might support those who need so much, don't they? Most of all, they need to know Christ. And I'm happy to be, a church, be part of a church that wants to take the gospel to them. So praise God for that. Well, here we are in, in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 44. Hear now the word of God. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. Our Father, we're thankful for your word now. We ask, according to your kindness and power, you would help us to understand it. And in understanding it, we would know you, draw near to you, love you more fervently. We want to be changed today by the truths in which we consider want to be more like Jesus. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've been accused before of telling the same story more than once. Um, I, occupational hazard, I think. You'll excuse me if I do it once again. It is, of course, I do it because I like these stories. Particularly, I like the one that occurred on May 19th, 1780, when there was an unusual darkening of the sky over New England. The cause of the event was believed afterward to be a combination of smoke from forest fires and a thick fog and cloud cover. Yet the darkness was so complete that the candles were required at noon. It would not disappear until the next day. Can you imagine what that would be like? Well, there's no forest fires near you, by the way. The forest fires were in Canada. And you're just going about your day, and it's noon, and, and the sun, as the record explains, turned blood red. Sky turns black. And you, you can't get on the internet. You can't pick up your phone to figure out what's going on. It's, all you know is there's darkness. It just so happened that the Connecticut legislature was in session at that time, and, 
And, and the records were kept as to their reaction. They were filled with awe and terror. Many of those legislators supposing this to be the day of the Lord. And so they moved for adjournment. And at that point arose an old Puritan, a man by the name of Mr. Davenport, who said, This well may be the day of judgment, which the world awaits. But be it so or not, I know only my present duty and my Lord's command to occupy till he come. So at the post where he hath sent me in his providence, I choose for one to meet him face to face. Not a faithless servant frightened for my task, but ready when the Lord of the harvest calls. Therefore, with all reverence, I would say, let God do his work and we will see to ours. Bring in the candles. And they did. They continued their labor. Imagine they understood the the darkness in a spiritual sense. They thought it was a spiritual darkness, a supernatural darkness, I perhaps should say. And they they thought it to be a sign of judgment. I wonder if that's what they thought as our Lord was being crucified. As you note, verse 44, it was now the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. What's happening as the sun goes dark, they must have thought. That's a good question for us to consider. As we consider the death of our Lord, I hope to explore this morning what what is happening and why, and not just the death of our Lord, but how is it that people respond to it? You, of course, know as uh, we we now are week three considering the, the crucifixion of our Lord as we work our way through Luke's gospel, that this is the heart of our faith. It's D.A. Carson who said the whole Bible pivots on one weekend in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian. We are, you're, of course, welcome. or delighted to have you. And if you're exploring what Christianity is all about, this is where you want to begin. Three days in Jerusalem about 2,000 years ago, in which we consider this morning, beginning with the death of Jesus. Jesus dies, as you see in our passage. The question for us is, what does it mean? God seems to speak, not audibly, but speaks through these supernatural signs. Luke records two. Matthew, by the way, will add a couple more. But just considering what Luke has to say is God seems to speak from heaven, it seems to me that God first communicates at the death of Jesus the debt of sin has been paid. I think that's what we are learning here about this darkness here in verse 44. They, by the way, would start their clock at the beginning of the day, not in the middle of the night, as we strangely do. And so the 6 a.m. would be the start of the day, and the 6th hour, therefore, would be noon. So the the sun has gone dark when it reaches its zenith, right? The brightest part of the day, all of a sudden, there's this black veil that shrouds the land until the ninth hour, or 3 p.m., um, the other accounts also record this darkening. Matthew and Mark mention it. But we also see it from the historical accounts outside of Scripture. For instance, a letter to Emperor Tiberius speaks of a midday darkness around this time. So dark in the middle of the day that the stars came out. The historian Phlegon also mentions a daytime darkness in Jerusalem at this time. You might be tempted to think, well, it sounds like a cli- an eclipse especially in light of last year's eclipse. The problem with that, if you remember, eclipse lasts about three minutes, not three hours. And moreover, Passover always takes place on a full moon, which means the moon will be on the wrong side of the world 
in order for there to be an eclipse. It can't be an eclipse. I would suggest to you that this is a supernatural darkening. That he whose birth brought brilliant light at midnight, now at death brings darkness at noon. But what does it mean? Why is it dark? Some have suggested it's a sign of the triumph of evil. The Lord, of course, just mentioned when he was arrested, did he not, to the mob that came to them? Remember that? This is your hour, the power of darkness, he said. It seems fitting, I guess, that that's all the wickedness that kind of rises up against the Lord on this day, that this would be a day that is covered in darkness. Others have suggested, no, it's a, it's a sign of mourning, of divine sorrow as the Son of God dies. I think there's probably truth in that for the prophet Amos said in chapter 8, On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make it like the morning for the death of an only son. Amos said hundreds of years before this event. God clothes the world in the color of grief as his son does. I'm sure there's truth there. But I think ultimately what we see in the darkness is that it is a sign of judgment. If you read the prophets of old, they would always speak of the day of the Lord or the day of vengeance. They would sometimes call it the day of judgment. And it's always referred to as a day of darkness. So Joel, for instance, says that the sun shall be turned to darkness before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Or Zephaniah would announce a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom. It seems to me that what is happening while Jesus is on the cross is a day of judgment before the day of judgment. That God is judging. God is angry. At whom, you may ask? The Romans that killed him? The religious leaders that turned on him? I don't think so. I think he's judging Jesus as our Lord is punished for our sin. And I think God has prepared us for this long ago. You'll remember when God redeemed his people from Egypt, from their bondage, not to sin, but to, but to this political power, their slavery. And remember, God did so through a series of plagues. You, of course, know the last plague, the 10th plague, the, 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 the death of the firstborn. And the only way to avoid that plague, you remember, is to kill the Passover lamb as the substitute for the firstborn, apply the blood to the threshold of, over the door. Well, you remember the ninth plague? It, it, it was darkness for three days. That's kind of an interesting plague, isn't it? Because it doesn't really hurt anyone. I mean, it, it's, it's not like gnats and frogs and painful boils and water turning the blood like the previous plague. So we get to the ninth plague, and all of a sudden, God, God just shuts off the light for three days, preceding the death of the Passover lamb by which his people will be redeemed from his judgment. Is he not preparing us for this work of our Lord now as the final Passover lamb is about to die? So darkness covers the land, not for three days, but for three hours. Jesus there endures the pain of judgment, of certainly physical pain he's experiencing. He's been struck and kicked and flogged and crucified. He's experiencing relational pain as we've explored. He's been betrayed by one he's loved. He's been denied by a friend. He's been abandoned by his disciples. He's experiencing psychological pain, the political injustice of his trials, paraded through the streets, being stripped naked, being spit upon. His 
clothes gambled for at his feet. You know, everything, every category of pain that we could come up with, we did to him. There was no evil which, he, which we can bring, which he was spared from. But I would suggest to you, of everything that, that man did to him on that day, it's like stubbing your toe compared to the real agony in which our Lord experienced as God poured out his wrath upon him. He's being struck with this staff of God's judgment. He is drinking the cup of divine retribution. The Lord is experiencing hell. In hell, the sun does not shine. It is the place of outer darkness, even as our Lord has taught us. And there he is cast away from the light. He is cast away from God. He's becoming the only person who ever to live who wants God and is cast away from God. He's the only person who ever lived who trusts God and is not received by God. He is abandoned by God. He is being crushed by God. He is crying out, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? It was the the great Presbyterian preacher, Robert Murray McShane, who said he was without any comforts of God, no feeling that God loved him. God was his son before. Now that son became all darkness. He was without God. He was as if he had no God. He had the feeling of the condemned when the judge says, depart from me, ye cursed. He felt that God had said the same to him, he writes. This is the hell which Christ suffered. The ocean of Christ's suffering is unfathomable. He was forsaken. This is what he's experiencing as he pays our debt. You'll excuse me if if this passage not only reminds me of the events of the Redemption of God's people from Egypt, but there's another time in which there's this darkness that covers the land. Think of how our scripture begins. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You read, the earth was without form and void, and you remember, and darkness was over the face of the earth, uh, over the face of the deep. So we find the earth, when God first makes it, it is, it is formless, it is void, uh, excuse me, empty, and it is dark. And what does God do? He begins on day one. He says, let there be light. And there was light, and the darkness flees. And then he begins to form the world. And once he has formed the world, he then uh, remedies its emptiness by filling the world. And yet now we come to the crucifixion of our Lord, and darkness returns. I'm not the only one to think that this might be just a picture of a reversal of creation. or The the maker is being unmade. He's being undone in order to pay our debt, in order to be punished for our sin. As Isaiah said, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The debt is paid. But God wants to communicate another message, doesn't he? He wants to explain that access is being granted. You see, there's another supernatural sign that accompanies the death of the Lord. It's recorded in verse 45 when we read, while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, when you think about a curtain, don't, don't think shower curtain here. This, it was like a wall, 60 feet tall. I don't know, I, I think that's about at least three times taller than the ceiling above you. It was the thickness of a man's hand. It was soundproof, and it was sliced in two as if by a great sword from top to bottom so everyone would know who did it. Why? 
Why is this curtain ripped in two? Well, there seems to me at least two reasons. One, we know, of course, the temple is where the sacrifices were made. And so this is a way God communicates that we don't need a temple anymore. Jesus is not simply a sacrifice for sins. He is the final sacrifice for sins. And therefore, we don't need any more Passover lambs and no more goats offered on the Day of Atonement and no more blood spread upon the mercy seat. For the Son of God, he has given the final and last sacrifice for sins. Temple is needed no more. But the temple did, had two role, roles, didn't it? It's not simply a place where you make sacrifices. It is where you come to meet with God, right? That, that was God's house. This is where you drew near to God. And I think what God is communicating is that access has been granted to him. The temple always had this message to God's worshipers, come close, but not too close. And so if you're a woman, you stayed in the woman's court. And maybe if you're a Gentile, you could come a little bit closer into the court of the Gentiles. If you're a Jewish male, you come a little bit closer. And, but you can't go in the building. Only if you're a priest, you could go in the building. And then, of course, as you know, only if you're a high priest and on one day of the year. And after ritual washings and abstaining from certain foods and certain activities and putting on the right clothes, carrying blood for your own sin, then you could go past the curtain and come into God's presence. The message that God was communicating as he says, I reside amidst you, and yet I am holy and you are unclean. So draw near, but not too close. So when the temple is torn, the, the curtain is torn in half, what God is communicating, that barrier between a holy God and unclean humanity has now been taken care of through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us access to God. You don't have to wear the right clothes. You can eat bacon and still come to God. You, you, you don't have to come on the right day. My friends, you don't even have to be holy and righteous. You as a sinner, unclean, can come into God's presence. All, all, all that matters is that Jesus has opened to us the doors to paradise. To the very presence of God. Now anyone who trusts in Christ can come, can draw near to God. Now you think, okay, well, well, big deal. I mean, doesn't everyone get to draw near to God? I mean, isn't that what the, the arrangement? Like you, anyone gets to, you just pray to God, and there he is, and you could draw near to God? And why is it a big deal to draw near to God? Well, I, I, I wonder if we should have that assumption. Are, are there not people in this world that you don't have access to? I mean, think about it. the president. Do you think, could, I mean, if you, this afternoon you decided you're going to go meet uh, President Trump, I, I think we might hear about that on the news tonight. I mean, you don't have access to the president. You, can't, you don't have access to Chief Justice John Roberts, right? You don't, even, you don't have access to Frank Beamer, right? Or, or, or Coach K, right? right? He's working today, by the way. Maybe Coach Bennett is available, but you probably don't have access to him either. Right? You can't draw near to these people. What's to think that we could just draw right near to God? And yet, of course, we can. You have access to God. For the Scripture says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, let us draw near. Listen, there are many people, individuals, you can't draw near to. God is not one of them. The way has been opened to God. This is what Christ has done. And after his work is finished, after he rips that curtain in two through his, through his sacrifice, Jesus dies, as you see in verse 46. But he does so in prayer. 
And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. These are the last words of Jesus on the cross, the last of what have been called his seven, the seven sayings from the cross. Only Luke will record these words. Uh, I, think, I think the words are interesting, but it, I, what I find perhaps even more interesting is how he says them. You notice Luke says he called out in a loud voice, and then he breathed his last. That's unusual because normally in a crucifixion, uh, you, you die over a period of days. No vital organs are, are damaged. Uh, it's a slow death. You, you, are, you, you die either from asphyxiation or, or impatient vultures or something like that. It takes a while, and usually, they usually die weak and gasping. They, they die feebly and quietly. They, they don't die praying loudly. I don't, in other words, I don't think the crucifixion killed Jesus. I think he chose to die. Did he not say as much when he said, I lay down my life? No man takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. It seems to me his work was finished at the very hour, 3 p.m., when the sacrifices are offered in the temple. He hands over his spirit into his Father's hands. As one pastor has put it, now the suffering is ended. That from which his soul shrank is over. The Lord has bruised him. Man and devil have done their worst. The cup drained, the storm of God's wrath spent, the darkness ended, the sword of divine justice sheathed, the wages of sin paid, the prophecies of his suffering fulfilled, the cross endured, divine holiness satisfied, and with a cry of triumph he shouts, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. His spirit, therefore, does not go into the black void of non-existence. It does not go into the dark unknown. He hands it over to his Father. Jesus believed that he, and not just him, but Christians, when we die, our spirit goes on to live with our Father to await the bodily resurrection when Jesus returns. Stephen believed this too. When he was dying, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That's a prayer echoed, by the way, by many. Polycarp in the second century, Bernard in the 12th, John Huss in the 15th, Martin Luther in the 16th century. They all prayed something to that effect. Father, into your hands I commit my Spirit, how will you die? Will you have that prayer on your lips? Or at least that hope in your hearts? Is that your confidence? It can be, of course, can't it? That could be the confidence of everyone in this room. In fact, if you even think about this prayer, maybe you would even echo it in your heart right now. You, you, you right now would say, Father, because Jesus has paid for my sin and because Jesus has opened the way to you, I commit my spirit, I commit my life, I commit everything I have into your hands. I trust you that you would follow our Lord in this prayer as he dies. Well, you see there, that, that is our Lord's death in verse 46. He has now died and the impact of his death is immediate. 
his atoning work begins to spread out. It's almost like a wave of grace comes from the cross and hits the people closest to it, and, and people come alive. In fact, some of the most unlikely of individuals, not his disciples, by the way, at least not initially, but it begins to spread first to a Roman soldier, then to a Jewish Pharisee, and then, and then on to a bunch of Galilean women. By the way, these are three groups of people that don't often interact, and they're all profoundly impacted by the death of Jesus. And my hope and prayer is that you too will be impacted by it as well. Consider these three groups of people that, that respond to his death. The Roman centurion immediately responds. This man standing there at the foot of the cross. He's first to be impacted by it. In fact, he's so impacted by it, he's moved to confess these words in verse 47. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Maybe your translation says, certainly this man was righteous. Now the question is, what is he confessing? Is this simply a, a statement of injustice, that this man shouldn't have been killed, this man was innocent? Well, you might think that, but I wonder if he's more than that. Notice that Luke says that's not all he says. He doesn't simply say this man was innocent. You see that in verse 47? Before he even says that man is innocent, he praised God. That's strange, isn't it? Right? He, pra- he praised God, and we just killed an innocent man. Right? Those two don't seem to go together, do they? I would suggest to you that this man is confessing more than Jesus is innocent or righteous. I think he is confessing that Jesus is uniquely righteous. I think he is confessing that Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God. In fact, if you read Mark's account, Mark will tell us that's exactly what he said. That Mark adds that the centurion declared this man was the Son of God. He, in other words, is no longer to him a a Jewish criminal to be mocked and killed. He is to him God's Son. But that, that just compounds the confusion. Because you just killed God's son. Why, therefore, are you praising God? Right? What, you, you think he would be saying, whoops. Right? Oh, boy. I, what, I just killed the son of God. And you go home and his wife say, honey, how was work? And he says, well, it's it a rough day. I think we killed God's son today. But that's not what happens. He praises God and has this confession. Why? Well, note not just what he confesses. Note why he confesses. Luke tells us he saw what what had taken place, what's going on. What what, what did he see? Well, he, he heard Jesus pray, and not just pray, but heard Jesus pray for him. Father, forgive his sin, he heard. You think he's heard that before? Right? I'm sure he's heard people swearing at him, and I'm sure he's heard people begging him, please don't do this. I'm sure he's heard people bargaining with him, pleading with him, I'll give you whatever you want, but praying for him, and praying for his forgiveness, praying for his good. I don't think he's ever heard that before. He heard Jesus promise to the thief next to him, as we saw last week, you're going to paradise with me today. He read the sign above his head, the king of the Jews. He heard the accusations of the chief priests. This man claims to be the Christ. He saw the sky grow dark at noon, and he listened to Jesus shout, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he puts it all together, it seems, and he knows this death is unlike any of the thousand deaths he has seen before, and he believes. 
This man is righteous. This man is the Son of God. Could you imagine hearing the Son of God pray for you? Like literally, like standing before you, praying that God would forgive you. I think if you heard Jesus praying, God forgive you, you might just praise God too. I think he believes. I think he believes he's forgiven because of the work of Jesus Christ. It's astonishing, by the way, especially in light of who he is, just not what he said or why he said it, but who said it? It's not a disciple. It's not even a Jew, right? Listen, the curtain's torn, and the first man to walk through into the presence of God is a pagan, is a Gentile, and just killed Jesus. Is that not (laughs) extraordinary? I mean, this man beat Jesus or stripped Jesus or spit on Jesus. He, he either pinned Jesus' hand down or held the nail or raised the hammer. He, he mocked Jesus undoubtedly, and by some grace of God, his mocking is now turned into praise. And I think about this. I can't help but think that God promised long ago to Abraham. Remember when he said, this, your, through your seed, Abraham, what? All the nations will be blessed. Not just the Jews, the world. And there, from the cross, God begins to bless the nations. And it continues, doesn't he? To millions and millions and millions of Gentiles, racial outcasts, come to know Christ and his grace. It's astonishing in light of who this man is. Christian, are you stunned that he would save you? Does that stun you? I think if you knew yourself better, you probably would. I think the more that we understand the depth of our sin, the more stunned that we would, that he would forgive us, the more inclined we would to follow this man's example and praise God and keep on praising God. As the hymn writer said, guilty, vile, helpless, we spotless lamb of God was he full atonement. Can it be? What is it? Hallelujah. Come on. What a savior. Is that your heart's cry? What a Savior. You think, by the way, people have gone too far in your life? You think, okay, I know this guy, but he would never come to faith in Christ. Well, let me ask you, has he killed Jesus? This man did. You think you've gone too far? I've done too much. If you pastor, if you only know what I've done, you would understand I'm outside of the mercy of God. Well, I'll tell you one thing you haven't done. You never pinned the Son of God's hand down and put a nail through it. You never killed his son. If there's mercy for this man, there's mercy for you. There's mercy for all. And there he, he, this man professes his faith. It's interesting to note he's not alone. There's these women gathered around. You see that in verse 49. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. These uh, Galilean women, if you remember from Luke chapter 8, were the ones who support, provided the financial support for Jesus' ministry. Now, Luke alone will share this information, and that shouldn't surprise us because Luke loves to highlight the women who are in Jesus' life. Luke will actually mention 13 women by name that are mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. And these women supported him in life, and they'll support him in death, as we'll see in a moment. But first, consider the second one to come alive. He's a, we might call him a religious outcast, a, a Jewish leader, a Pharisee, in fact, as you see in verse 50. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man. Joseph of Arimathea is mentioned in all four Gospels, but only in relation to the burial of Jesus. We don't hear from him 
before or after. Luke will tell us he's a member of the council, which means he's a member of the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish court or ruling body that just brought Jesus to Pilate to be crucified. And so I think if, if we take in all that we've studied over the years through Luke's gospel, this is probably the last person we would expect to respond favorably to Jesus. If I were to say, okay, there's one more that's going to respond to Jesus, you would think, okay, well, here comes a Samaritan, or here comes a leper, or here comes a prostitute or tax collector. But you would not think, here comes a Jewish leader, probably. You wouldn't, here comes someone who's powerful, or here comes someone rich. Because every time we've seen one of those people in Luke's gospel, they're always opposing Jesus. And now we get to the end of the gospel, and what do we see? But a Jewish Pharisee comes to honor Jesus, Jesus even saves the religious outcasts. We read in verse 51, he had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. So he didn't agree that Jesus should be crucified, unlike the rest of the Sanhedrin. But it's interesting because Luke never mentions him voicing his opposition. Leads us to think maybe he was absent or maybe, maybe he was silent. Maybe he abstained in the vote. He wasn't very bold then. In other words, he had some secret faith that Jesus was the king. He was, as Luke says, looking for the kingdom of God. And now that the king is dead, Joseph makes this amazing request and asks for the body of Jesus. As we see in verse 52, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Normally, you would leave the bodies up on the cross for days and weeks after they died. You would, you would lead them there um, to rot before they were thrown into a common grave. This would be done to further shame them, serve as a deterrent for their crimes. But for Joseph, it's unacceptable, isn't it? And he comes out of hiding, and he goes to Pilate and asks for his body. And please understand, in making this request, he's being very bold. In fact, Marx explains in great courage Joseph did this. He has much to lose. Because Pilate just executed this man for treason. So it's not in the state's interest for him to receive a proper burial, is it? Moreover, the Sanhedrin are not looking for one of their own members to honor the one whom they have just so publicly denounced and condemned. And, 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 and even to make things more, more amazing is that he's now dead. He can't help him anymore. And yet, Joseph, against his peers, risking his wealth, his position, all the relationships in which he has, he, he goes and he, he sides with this dead man. It would be like a, a senator siding with an executed terrorist or a pastor siding with a condemned heretic. That's the end of your career, that's the end of your position. And yet this is exactly what he does. Joseph has everything to lose, and yet he identifies with Jesus even after Jesus has died. And so why? What, why would a man who's a coward while Jesus is alive give up everything now that Jesus is dead? What's going on in his heart? Well, I think this man who would not honor Jesus in life out of fear, clearly he has been changed, isn't he? He now runs to the dead body as if he is a new man. I think his identity has changed. He no longer values power and wealth and position. That, that doesn't rule him anymore. And he's willing to give it up all for Jesus. He's willing to risk it all for Jesus. He's willing to put it all on the line for Jesus. I wonder, when's the last time you've ever risked anything for Jesus? Do you take risks for him? Because what you value has changed. Sometimes I fear, you know, we, 
and I may be off base, you could tell me, sometimes I fear we come on Sunday and we get kind of motivated and stirred in our hearts and God works in our souls and then, and then we leave and there's no change. Ever think that might happen? Like God truly speaks to us and yet there's no transformation. I'm very challenged by this man. He is radically transformed and he's willing to risk for Jesus. Do you ever risk for Jesus? Would you risk something for Jesus this week? Will you, will you mention the word of Jesus on, for, on your lips, not in prayer or reading scripture, but perhaps in conversation? Well, he goes, and um, amazingly, this request is granted. You see that in verse 53? Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had yet been laid. It was the day of preparation. And the Sabbath was beginning. Jesus died at 3. The Sabbath would begin at 6. And so the reference in verse 54, the day of preparation, that's just referring to the day before the Sabbath. They have to prepare for the Sabbath so they can't work on the Sabbath. It's kind of in the corn house. We, we do a lot of cleaning on Saturday, so we don't have to clean on Sunday, our day of rest. And this is what the, the, the day, of, day of preparation is drawing to a close. And so Joseph has to work quickly. He goes to Pilate, asks for the body. And then we read in verse 53, he takes the body down. What do you think that must have been like? To pull the... I don't know, do you take the nail out or you just pull the hand through it to grab Jesus' naked body covered in blood and gore and prepare it for burial? I think it's a powerful scene. We know, of course, in John's Gospel that Nicodemus, another Pharisee, would join him. And there in the, the flickering candlelight in the limestone tomb, these two men wash this, this blood-caked body. And you see him in your mind's eye, gently wrapping it in these linen strips mixed with their spices. And eventually they would come to his face, wouldn't they? Perhaps they'd combed his hair, placed a shroud over our Lord's face. This undoubtedly would be the first time Joseph has ever prepared anyone for burial. This is loathsome work, and it is not done by rich men. It's not done by men at all. And by the way, notice who else is there. Verse 55 tells us, those women that we saw in verse 49, they haven't gone away. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. And so the, the, the women are there right outside. They watch this. I, by the way, I imagine they would have been happy to bury Jesus. And yet Joseph does not say, hey, you there, you women, you come do this. This is beneath me. No. He no longer stands on his dignity. This man has changed, and he himself will honor the Lord. The Lord will receive his honor, even though it's taken some while. Through his trial and his crucifixion, he's full of indignity and shame and abuse. And once he's dead, is that not amazing? Once, in other words, once the work of atonement is finished, the ridicule is silent. The mockers go home. And he's surrounded with honor and love because his suffering is over. He's paid the debt. And he's even placed in a new tomb. This would be a, a tomb that's cut out, that Joseph would cut out for his family. A tomb would have at least two chambers. There would be a slab where you would lay the body. And then after the while, you would re-enter the tomb and, and gather the, the decomposed remains of the body, the bones, and put it in a box. And you would take that box and you would put it in the other chamber where the other remains of the family members lie. And there the slab will be available for the next in your family to die. 
Well, Joseph has this, this tomb cut for himself. It has not been used. So Joseph, in a sense, is giving Jesus his family burial plot. Out of this great love and affection, he wants Jesus to be buried in his spot. And, and there Jesus is treated better than he had been in life. Just as Isaiah told us 700 years before this happened, though he die in the company of the wicked, you know this, he'd be assigned a grave with the rich in his death. Well, as it noted, Joseph did not act in secret. There is this third group that are radically impacted by Jesus and his death, and it's the Galilean women. We'll be quick on this. They are these, I might, we might call them social outcasts. I'll explain that in a minute. But you notice, by the way, before we look at them, who's missing? So you got this Roman centurion, you got a Jewish Pharisee, you have these, the Galilean women. Does it sound like there should be somebody else around here? Maybe the apostles? They're off saving their own skin, aren't they? All we find are these women. In fact, verse 55, look, it says, The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how he was laid. Even in death they're following the Lord, aren't they? I trust they must have been amazed to see Joseph come for the body. They must have thought, what is he going to do with it? Certainly, that's not what they thought. And this man is not their natural friend. And so they, they must have followed and very cautiously. By the way, public grieving for someone who's executed by the state was forbidden by the Roman government. And so there, there, there could not be a funeral for Jesus. But, of course, he didn't really need a funeral, did he? But I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, um, They come and they mourn quietly. And because it's late in the day and Joseph might not be able to finish the task of anointing the body, you notice what happens in verse 56. They returned and prepared spices and ointments. They return home. They go home and gather the, the ointments. But there's not enough time to come back to finish the burial. So they're going to have to wait till after the Sabbath as you finish this text. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. You notice their godly character, by the way. They, they want to honor the Lord's body and at the same time honor the Lord's Sabbath. So they observe the day of rest. And they will shall come once the Sabbath is over at first light on Sunday morning. And there they will encounter the Lord in a way they are not expecting. As I mentioned, the men are gone. Right? They, they've run away. Just the women now. You may not know this, but in all four Gospels, there's not a single event in which you will find a single woman who opposes Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Not one responds to Jesus inappropriately. In fact, we would have no idea where the empty tomb was if it were not for these courageous women. We should praise God for them and the faithful women in our lives, don't you think? I wonder how many of us first heard the gospel because a sister in Christ loved us enough to tell us. Well, I mentioned their social outcasts. I do so because the, in the Jewish and Roman cultures, the women were considered unreliable witnesses. They had no power. They had very little means of accumulating wealth. So they could sometimes do it. And yet all four Gospels, when we get to the climatic events of human history, it's all dominated by Jesus' female followers. They would be the only ones to see both Jesus' death, as you see in verse 49, see Jesus' burial, as we see in verse 55, and see Jesus' resurrection, as we'll see next week in chapter 24. So there is not a single man who ever lived who could say, I saw Jesus die, buried, and raised. Only these women are able to say this. And they are so powerfully impacted by him that they, they follow him all the way to the tomb and shall return on Sunday morning. I wonder, do you, do you, do you share that kind of impact that they have? Are you also impacted by the Lord 
in powerful ways. You know, not everyone is. I don't know if you noticed, we skipped verse 48, didn't we? It's interesting. This is right after Jesus died, and we read, And all the crowds that assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. These are some spectators there. They're not quite sure what to make of all this. They know it's a spectacle, and they know something unique is happening, that something sad is happening, maybe something important is happening, and it's, it's even worthy of beating your breast or pounding your chest as you go home. But for them, the crucifixion is something to ponder. It's not something to praise God for, like the centurion. And I wonder if there are many like that. And maybe even some here today. You'll come and you'll watch. But you will not worship. Stand back and consider what everyone else is doing. Everyone, watch others sing. But you won't sing. Watch others give, but you won't give. Watch others pray, but you won't pray. Watch others be baptized, but you won't be baptized. You, you watch and go home. I wonder, who, who do you, where do you find yourself in this passage? Who do you identify with? Will you go home today after we consider the death of our Lord on your behalf? And will you, will you simply continue your life just as it was yesterday? Or will you, will you be willing this week to risk something for him? like Joseph did? Or will you praise him for what he's done like the centurion? Or will you confess him? Maybe even now that God would grace to you, bring you to the point where you confess, truly this was the Son of God. And you would place your faith in him. And in doing so, follow that centurion right into the presence of God by his grace. Our Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that it records for us the death of our Lord and how that death has impacted so many. May it impact us as well. Even this week as we prepare for Easter Sunday, I think we would do well, Father, to consider, ponder, reflect upon the death of your Son and our Savior. And yet, not just think about it, but let it change us. Let it transform us. Let it produce new life within us. Maybe you would even, in your kindness, produce new life in one who's here today that has not yielded themselves to the Lord Jesus, that you would show them, even as we have considered your word, that it is not by their goodness or their righteousness, the life they live, which will allow them to come into your presence, but it is only by Christ who has torn the curtain in two that we might approach you, that they would even now call out and say, I believe, forgive me of my sin. I yield my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do this, we pray, for their great and eternal gain and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.